We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. At least one of every seven children in Maryland lives in poverty. A new analysis says the real number might be higher, maybe one in every five children. Whatever the number is, it's too high. Governor Westmore has pledged to end child poverty in Maryland. He joins us to tell us how he plans to do that and how long it will take. Welcome to On the Record, Governor Moore. It's great to be with you. Thank you. And, and thank you for, the, for your focus on this issue. In your State of the State speech this month, you called eradicating child poverty an audacious goal. What makes you think you can do it? Well, what makes me think I can do it is that I know that we're going to be able to pull the whole state around it. Uh, and it's the reason why during my State of the State, uh, I called for us to have a, a bold but also a bipartisan approach. Because I know that the issue of child poverty, it's not an urban issue. It's not a rural issue. You will see these issues and, and hear about them, whether you're in Allegheny and Garrett County or whether you are in St. Mary's or whether you're in Dorchester or Somerset or whether you're in Baltimore City or Cecil County. This is an issue that the entire state wrestles with. And the idea that we are determining the fate of our children before they even have a say is something that none of us should be okay with. And I think we are going to we are going to build a collective and, and, and a bipartisan coalition to be able to address these issues thoroughly and sincerely. How did you settle on extending and expanding the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit as the place to start? It started with where, where most things start with me, which is data. The data is very clear about the efficacy of, of the earning income, uh, earn income tax credit and the child tax credit, because we have seen that these are have historically been some of the most effective tools that we have to be able to to be able to address this issue. Uh, and, and I knew that when you looked at the first bills that we were going to introduce uh, and when we talk about what does it mean to actually have an audacious goal to impact child poverty, uh, it, it is not lost on anybody that whether you're talking about the Family Prosperity Act, uh, which will permanently extend the enhanced earned income tax credit uh, and expand the child tax credit. Uh, or, or whether you're talking about how we're how we're building out to make sure that we can advance the the minimum wage and index it to index to inflation, these are things that are going to have the have the opportunity to lift the uh, at least 154,000 children in Maryland up an economic ladder, up a rung on the economic ladder, which uh, which you're not going to find a single piece of legislation that is going to have that kind of direct impact on working families and particularly families who are working in some cases working multiple jobs and still living at or below a poverty line and so we knew we wanted to start our agenda we knew we wanted to start our, our policies really focusing on things like that we know that worked things like the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit that's Governor Wes Moore on the record on WYPR I'm Sheila Cast we're talking about how he intends to end child poverty in Maryland of course, lack of income defines poverty, but it, it's not the whole picture, especially when we look at intergenerational poverty. There are a lot of factors. What's next in your plan? Well, and, well, you're, you're absolutely right, um, because uh, you know, a, a lack of income is just one defining indicator or for where a person is on a, on, a, on a poverty line. And frankly, it's a pretty antiquated measurement. But I think there's a few different things that we also have got to focus on that really are helping and assisting all of our families to have a measure of, 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 of sustainable economics. 
I always say you cannot have the, 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 the North Star for our campaign, for our administration, it is work, wages, and wealth, right? But you know, you cannot have work, wages, and wealth without health. And knowing our ability to be able to address behavioral and mental health is another core priority that we have for our administration. And it's the reason why, you know, I've, uh, uh, I've allocated in the proposed budget a record $1.4 billion in direct state support for mental health and substance use programs, more than $616 million to fund provider rate increases in the fields of behavioral health, developmental disabilities, Medicaid, uh, and also uh, in, had a 39% increase in funding for substance abuse disorders. The reason why these things become so important is if we're not also focusing on the challenge of mental health and behavioral health, both for our students, our educators, our first responders, like our police officers and our firefighters, everybody within our society and really adding a trauma-informed lens into the work that we're doing, then we're going to repeatedly miss the point and we're gonna repeatedly miss our targets. And so that's why that is another, uh, that's another pillar of how we talk about what does it mean to create a state that is gonna be both more competitive and also be more equitable and where we don't have to choose, we can do both. Unstable housing bedevils families in poverty. What's your plan to address that? Yeah, uh, unstable, unstable housing is, is another massive challenge. Uh, and in fact, the number one driver of poverty in our state is, is, is housing instability. And so if you look at the budget that we've laid out, there's a few different things that, um, that, that we have as a, as, a, as a focus to make sure we're you know, preserving, producing, and, and protecting uh, affordable housing. Uh, you know, one, it does mean that we need to preserve. And that means looking at the inventory that we have on board and making sure that the inventory is habitable. And you see that challenge, whether you're talking about Western Maryland or West Baltimore, where, where you have housing, but it is just simply inhabitable. We've got to invest in things that are going to make sure the housing is habitable and the units, if they are not, that we have a way of taking care of a lot of these vacant and inhabitable homes. It's the reason that we put you know, upwards of $20 million in things like Project Core. Uh, it means we also do need to produce more. You know, anyone who says that we have enough affordable housing, we have enough affordable rental housing, is it, just not accurate. Uh, and I don't know what neighborhoods they're spending time in. And it's part of the reason why in our budget, we, we allocated, in our proposed budget, we allocated $63 million just for the production of new affordable housing units. And it also means protection. And so that, that's the reason why I am for and will continue to push for that we can have a right to counsel for people in eviction court. Uh, because you know, our ability to keep people inside of their housing becomes an important structure and an important basis for what does it mean to create long-term and sustainable economic pathways. And that also includes making sure that we're creating easier pathways for people to become homeowners. When we're talking about that last vehicle of wealth and you know, the, of, the, of, the, of the tripod of work, wages, and wealth, home ownership and equity is one of the fastest ways for us to be able to address these things. So being able to address a lot of those historical disparities like the, the housing appraisal uh, disparities that exist in historically red line neighborhoods or creating additional pathways for people to become homeowners. Those are all things that that the data continues to show can have a market impact on long term economic prospects. As of now, Maryland voters have given you four years. How much of a dent in child poverty do you expect to make? by the end of this term? Well, I, I hope we can make enough of a dent to justify eight. Uh, you know, and the thing that I, I think that people, you know, people know and understand and they see within our first budget uh, and they see within our first three weeks uh, that, that we're moving fast. 
we're moving aggressively and we're taking this very, very seriously because we are prioritizing that this is going to be the thing that we have to be able to address if we are going to make sure we're meeting this moment. And so by being able, you know, when we said that we have to make sure this becomes a state that serves, and that means doing things like helping to fill the, you know, the 10,000 overall vacancies that are sitting in state government, 6,100 in the executive branch alone, because part of the reason that we have basic functions that are not being performed is because we don't have people who are sitting inside of the seats. Our ability to be able to make good on educational promises. Uh, and that includes uh, beginning to operationalize what has been a very uneven and sloppy implementation of the blueprint uh, is going to become crucial and going to become important. And being able to have us as a state that serves, where we have more people who understand that their fingerprints have to be on the future of our state. These are all things that I, uh, I think we're going to be able to show a real measure of improvement and a, and a real measure of focus on in our in our in our first years that uh, that hopefully when I come back in four years and, and ask for people's vote for reelection, that uh, that I will have shown that I will earn it. And one of the factors in all this, I mentioned at the outset, the the new analysis that there are 110,000 kids in financially strapped families who have not been counted as poor, but probably should be. This would raise the cost of what schools need to do. How much does this complicate your view of ending child poverty? Well, you know, it, it, it listen, I think what it does, and I think what the most recent report's shown, it shows what, for those of us who have been in this field for a long time, what we already knew. Uh, you know, that, that there are there are oftentimes more children who are dealing with the pressures and the stresses of poverty than we realize. This is not their problem. This is not the problem over there. These are problems that we are seeing that more children in the state of Maryland are dealing with than we initially anticipated or valued in. And so that's why I think and, and I know that we are already working in partnership with local jurisdictions, already working in partnership with the legislature to say for many of the basis and for many of the lines that we were looking at before to be able to address child poverty, there has to be a greater level of urgency and there has to be a thoughtful and a sober way that these policies can be put into, into, into action uh, because, because we are not going to piecemeal our way out of the larger challenges of, of, of addressing the lack of economic mobility that people have um, by, by not moving with a sense of urgency that this moment actually requires. Governor Moore, thank you. Thank you. Wes Moore took office as Maryland's 63rd governor five weeks ago. Short break on the record when we're back. What else would work to cut poverty? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Even though she works full-time, even overtime, 
Just last month, Shante Westfield's family in Prince George's County was homeless. They'd been evicted. Her children missed several weeks of school. Her family is back in an apartment now, she told the House Ways and Means Committee, partly because of the kind of support she gets from the Earned Income Tax Credit. This bill will help keep a roof over my family's head, keep us stable, and allow my kids to further their education without the added stress of homelessness. Not, not knowing where you're going to live each day, each night, each week is very stressful and very scary. The bill Westfield was testifying for last week is part of Governor Moore's proposal to start ending childhood poverty in Maryland by extending two tax credits that help families and raising the minimum wage. Stephanie DeLuca focuses intensely on poverty as director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Lab. She is the James Coleman Professor of Social Policy and Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. When she and two colleagues co-wrote the book, coming of age in the other America. They talked to scores of young people in West Baltimore. Welcome back to On the Record, Professor DeLuca. Oh, thanks for having me, Sheila. It's great to be back. What do you make of this effort at this moment to set a goal of eliminating child poverty in the state? I think there's, you know, almost never been a better time to think about this. Uh, I think that the The Great Recession and COVID on its heels created a space in our public and policy discourse around poverty that we haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, So I think it's a good time to strike. Uh, And I think that what we've seen from uh, the expanded safety net during COVID is that we can make some significant headway in reducing child poverty, uh, which is something um, that the United States has regretfully struggled with for decades. Witnesses told the Ways and Means Committee that three-fourths of those who are food insecure, who who often don't know where the next meal is coming from, three-fourths of them work full-time, like Shante Westfield, whom we heard from. Is that generally true of people in poverty? I've spoken with lots of policymakers on both sides of the aisle, and I think it's a common misconception, you know, an overused stereotype that poor people don't work. My team and I have spent 20 years in six cities across the country. We've interviewed in in people's homes over 1,100 families. And I can count on one hand, you know, the number of, 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 of households in which parents have not tried to, have not worked or tried to find work in the last year. I think working full-time year-round minimum wage doesn't guarantee that you can afford the area median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in virtually any county in the United States. So the question is, you know, people working, they're working. That's not the, the issue. The issue is, you know, how expensive housing has been um, and, you know, the, the cost of, of other things families care about. Well, let's talk about housing. Uh, we heard Governor Moore say instability of housing is the number one driver of poverty in Maryland. You collaborated on a project in the Seattle area called Creating Moves to Opportunity. Before I ask you to describe what it did, what was its premise? I mean, what did you think needed to be looked at? So one thing that has become increasingly clear over the last few decades across the social sciences is that where a child grows up 
has a has an independent causal effect on that child's economic mobility and well-being in adulthood above and beyond the family she grows up in. So we now know that neighborhood location where people live is an independent cause of economic mobility, poverty, well-being, educational attainment, which means that we have a policy lever when we think about housing policy. Housing policy, how we invest in housing policy can be thought of as how we invest in education policy and how we invest in in policy for economic mobility. So that's one really exciting um, uh, result from research. And we have a few programs on the books to support low-income families um, with subsidized housing, although um, not nearly enough. Um, Only about one out of four households who are eligible for housing assistance in the United States receives any, uh, which is sort of like winning the lottery ticket or finding that Willy Wonka golden ticket in the chocolate bar. Um, It's not like other means-tested programs, despite the fact that housing is the biggest uh, uh, cost item in a family's budget. One of the programs that we have on the books is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, It used to be known as the Section 8 program, uh, but is now thought of as the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And this program uh, is, you know, the the largest uh, program that HUD provides to to support low-income families' housing. But what we see is that typically most families who, who are lucky enough to get the housing voucher end up moving to high, moderate to high poverty areas with the voucher. What that means is what we now know about how important neighborhood, you know, we're lo- we have a policy opportunity that's lost here. When we know neighborhoods matter, we have a subsidy, yet that subsidy is, is being used to, um, uh, to pay for housing in a lower opportunity areas. So um, the Creating Moves to Opportunity program um, was in part motivated uh, by an interest that the Seattle and King County housing authorities had in helping improve, increase the residential choices of voucher families in the Seattle metro area so that they could take advantage of the what we call the geography of opportunity and move to the kinds of places that more affluent families and their children have long enjoyed. That's Johns Hopkins sociologist Stephanie DeLuca. On the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about prospects for ending child poverty in Maryland and the role that housing plays in poverty. Back up for me a minute. I mean, this idea that just living in areas where the people around you are making progress in their lives will increase your odds of succeeding seems kind of magical. I mean, do do I have that right? And if so, how do you figure out what an area of high opportunity is before the people you want to move there have moved there? I, I, magical is one way to to describe it, Sheila. It, it's certainly the case that, um, in some ways, it's it's what's magical is that we've aligned, um, we've been able to align research evidence uh, uh, and a policy tool to create, uh, uh, you know, uh, benefits for families um, that. You know, uh, it, it, the benefits pay for themselves in the long run and have received bipartisan support. That we can open that up a bit more. That's magical to me. I think most folks, if you ask that, if you say this, then will say, you know, poor, poor middle income, high income will say, well, you know, in a gut reaction, say that makes sense to me. 
But, you know, traditionally, we have not thought of our anti-poverty policy as housing policy, right? When we go back to thinking to the Great Society programs uh, started under Johnson, a lot of these programs focused on, you know, more, um, you know, sk- you know, t- skills and, and you know, what people must be missing skills and they can't get jobs and that's why they're poor. We weren't really thinking about housing policy. So this is, you know, in some ways, relatively new ground, despite um, how intuitive it is. Uh, so I think that's, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's certainly something that's gaining policy momentum and lots of other housing authorities across the country are interested in improving the way they deliver services for their housing voucher recipients. And uh, um, and this is, um, you know, a, a great opportunity. Congress has funded an expansion of housing mobility services to the tune of over $50 million to expand the kinds of services that we saw in Seattle were effective for helping families. And briefly, what kinds of services? So the services that families get to help them um, to help support their residential choices include, uh, and this is what's really um, uh, you know special about the Seattle program, although our, our own uh, Baltimore Housing Mobility Program has long employed services like this to help African-American families in the Baltimore metro area uh, um, find housing that they enable where they wanna raise their kids. The services we're talking about fall into three buckets um, and all of the services are administered by a group of supportive staff called housing navigators. And the staff are important because what they do is they sit down with families after receiving their voucher and say, let's talk about where you'd like to live, which is something most poor families, they don't get asked what they want when they sit down and, and talk to folks from most social service agencies. So this this sort of approach uh, was, was really effective. Um, we interviewed over 160 of the families in Seattle and heard this over and over again turn to families and say, let's talk about the places that you can move with your voucher. And let's talk about the fact that there are some neighborhoods in the Seattle metro area where research has shown that children who grow up in these places uh, go on to earn more more money and are more likely to enroll in college. If you're interested in trying to move to one of these places, we can supplement your voucher with some additional financial assistance to pay for housing applications, offset moving costs, um, you know, pay for some holding fees. We're also going to help you navigate relationships with landlords, which is a very stressful thing for most people, um, let alone low-income folks, to, to um, pick up the phone, call a landlord, and say, I'm interested in one of your properties. I have a voucher. Will you take me? Part of this is, is the services really provide um, the additional support needed, although it's a marginal cost relative to, to the cost of housing, to help families navigate some of the really difficult administrative and bureaucratic processes of, of using the voucher and finding housing, and then help them navigate relationships with landlords who, in neighborhoods that are higher opportunity, uh, tend to be more um, hesitant to hostile about taking families with vouchers. So it sounds as if with the programs you study in housing, as with the, the child tax credits, that the Moore administration says we have evidence that they work and they would actually pay for themselves. And some listeners may be thinking, if there are steps like that we know about, why do we still have thousands of children in poverty? What is standing in the way? Right. So on this first point, it's music to my ears, puts a smile on my face as a you know, social scientist. I know I'm not alone in this. To see a governor step in and say, I want to invest in policies that we know work. 
So I don't, I can't underemphasize how important that is um, and how much of a, uh, you know, we, we of an evidence-based approach we should take more generally to policy making. Um, I think, uh, I, I think that's important. Why do we still see levels of child poverty that, um, you know, should make Americans ashamed? I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think when we find out what works and we have an arsenal now, we've talked about the EITC, uh, we've talked about housing mobility, um, there are there are some other programs. What what happens is there'll be an investment, but it, these investments are intermittent. Uh, they come and go depending on who's in, you know, the, the governor's mansion, uh, who's in, you know, in control of Congress. And so I think, um, you know, we really have not done the sort of doubling down on what works to give families and and, and children a, a real chance to take advantage of uh, of some of these policies and um, you know and, and enjoy um, you know more safe and satisfying lives, but also re- reach their potential. That's what this is about. Professor Deluca, thank you. You're welcome, Sheila. Stephanie DeLuca is the James Coleman Professor of Social Policy and Sociology at Johns Hopkins. She directs the Poverty and Inequality Research Lab. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to Professor DeLuca's work on creating moves to opportunity and to reporting by our partner, the Baltimore Banner, about how expanded tax credits are expected to work. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. <laughs>